Hey, everybody. Are you with me when I say life can be amazing at times, but it can also be extremely challenging? I know. I've been there myself, learned some valuable life lessons along the way, and now I'm here to help you. It's no coincidence you found your way to the Relevate podcast. I'm your host, Rena Olson, a self-proclaimed inspirer of others. Together, we're going to dive deep into raw and honest conversations with real people. My hope is that through these stories, you too will be inspired and ready to tackle whatever's holding you back or breaking your heart. Then you'll be free to live a life of purpose and true fulfillment. I promise it's possible. Let's Relevate. Hey friends, it's Rena Olson. Welcome to this episode of the Relevate Podcast. My guest today is Jay Watson, an Emmy Award-winning journalist who left television news to put her incredible talent as a stellar storyteller to work for Emory Brain Health Center. It was a bold career move for Jay with a lot of unknowns. Learn more about her journey and the blessings that have come along the way, including the Your Fantastic Mind TV series and partnership with Georgia Public Broadcasting. Jay Watson, welcome to the Relevate Podcast. Thank you for having me, Rena. Oh my gosh, so exciting. I feel like I know you, even though I just had a brief conversation as we are um, kind of getting acquainted, but I just respect you so much as a reporter Mm -hmm. and a storyteller, and you just get the heart of a story. I mean, you don't just report the facts, you really capture the heart, so... Great job You're on so that. Fine. I, I, I really appreciate that. And, and uh, I'm very, I'm very happy to be sitting here able to talk to you today. So thank you for being so gracious uh, as to invite me. Okay. So for people who might not be familiar with you, how do you describe yourself? A curious George who found a way to make a living out of it. <laughs> uh, truly, I, I used to get in trouble as a kid for talking too much and asking too many questions. They had a silent policy at dinner made just for me. And every, every, we were just joking about this. Every single school year, all through elementary school, my desk was moved within the first week. Uh, you know, I was a career journalist for 25 years and uh, 18 of them spent at 11 Alive in Atlanta mm-hmm. um, as a journalist there. And in the last six or seven years, a member of the morning show. And then a philanthropist, Emory Brain Health was newly created at the time, um, came to me and asked me if I would be interested in coming here to tell stories inside Emory Brain Health. And I said, oh, no, 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 I don't want a PR job. Yeah. They're like, no, it's not a PR job. It's you would be a roving journalist inside Brain Health telling stories there. I was like, hmm, that sounds weird. That sounds risky. I have a very stable job. I've done this for 25 years. And it took me a couple of years. It took me two or three years before I said yes. And what I will share is that Mary Rose Taylor is the person behind my job. And um, She used to run the Margaret Mitchell house. She was married to Mac Taylor, who helped bring the Olympics to Atlanta. And we developed a friendship and she wanted me to come here. And she was very passionate about brain health because Mac had Alzheimer's. And I just kept saying no. And um, then Mary was diagnosed with ALS. And um, then our talks changed. And she told me it was her wish that I would come here to continue her legacy of brain health. And I felt a lot of pressure. And I prayed about it for about a year Mm. and I realized I was supposed to leave. 
even though I didn't know what this was going to look like at all. And I didn't see how it was feasible at all. And it made no sense on paper to me at all. And it was the smartest decision I made. I came here, my, my husband and I, um, who's a photographer storyteller. Mm-hmm. And um, nine months after I got to Brain Health, um, the head of Georgia Public Broadcasting, whom we had known of each other in the business before, we had, um, she came to an event at Brain Health and I showed a couple of my stories. It was the International Women's Forum, which was founded by President and Mrs. Carter, Rosalind Carter and 60 other women came and, and Taya Ryan, the president and CEO of Georgia Public Broadcasting was there. And at the beginning and end, I showed two of the stories I've done since I got here. That was followed by a lunch and an offer for this show, Your Fantastic Mind. And the second season launches in like five days. So I do think uh, God was at work there. Uh, no mistake. Because I was completely, um, and I think people thought I was crazy. They're like, you're leaving to go do what? And who will see your stories? And they're not a broadcast outlet. And um, none of it made sense. So it was very humbling and a very good learning experience for me about trusting God, trusting your gut and taking a leap, even when people around you don't understand why you are. Exactly. Well, and it, it just sounds like it's a job that really matters. You know, you are truly helping people on a level that you can't really even understand. Yeah, I find great purpose in it. My medical stories were always my favorite at the station. And, and someone asked me about it at some point a long time ago. And I said, I think it's about the ultimate struggle Um, to overcome something. Because anytime I did a medical story, whether it was a child with cancer or an adult with Alzheimer's, Mm -hmm. this person was either having to come to terms with something, having to try to beat something. And for me, it is almost like a microcosm of what our lives are like, that we are constantly striving, trying to get past this next thing, trying to overcome something. Mm -hmm. And you know, while I could take a pothole story in Atlanta and have fun with it, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I always dig so deep because that's what feeds me, which makes other people sometimes uncomfortable. I, I remember in college, uh, friends would have a boyfriend and they'd say, please don't do that thing you do when they bring him home to meet. Uh-huh. And I'm like, what? Don't grill him to death. Don't ask him a million questions. I'm like, well, I just want to understand him. So that's the blessing of being able to find something where you can use this thing that to some people might be a little annoying. Right. And to be able to do a deep dive into stories instead of producing a, I mean, what was your average news segment? Like, Um, so the average news segment is about 75 seconds, but I was the famous windbag of the station. And I would have pieces that were three, four or five minutes long Mm -hmm. and everyone would roll their eyes, but it's because I would get a, good story. Now we have this show, which every episode is a half hour and it's about one thing, but it's different facets of one thing. So our premiere is about COVID and, and that was really challenging to try to do an episode on COVID when we're bombarded by COVID information and we're learning so much. So what could I do meaningful? And so what are we living in? You're in your house right now and I'm in my office and we can't be on those chairs behind you because of COVID. So I, a lovely family led us into their home and we showed how families have been living for months and months with online school and, and at home work. And then we talked to the experts about what the mental impacts are on, on us and the long-term mental impacts on our children um, and how it will change them. 
And we also look at how substance use has gone up dramatically during COVID yeah. and alcohol use and abuse and sales up dramatically. Um, we're also examining the impacts of the virus on the brain, how it can cause a dementia-like syndrome, how they believe that people who suffer depression after COVID, it could be because the virus impacted that area of the brain, not because they're down. Right. It's part of the, the disease process. And then we went to Yerkes and uh, spent time with an HIV team that in the matter of a month came up with a vaccine for COVID um, that they that they are very confident in. And so we have all of these different elements in this show, but one topic. And so you can dive deeper on stuff. Yeah. yeah. And I know you, and I'm sure you are looking for the hope part of the story. And you're going to yeah. tell that part too, which I appreciate because I think people are, we need to hear the hope in these stories. And even though um, you get a devastating brain diagnosis, there's still so much hope and love and faith that, that comes out. Um, yeah, a hundred percent. I am. The one thing we said with season two, we thought we had an opportunity to do was to give people as many takeaways as possible, mm -hmm. meaning whether it's advice, like I'm going to try this with my child, or I never saw it that way. I think, I think that's good. And I didn't know that, that when people watch it, they won't just be, a removed viewer that they will be connected to the people whose experience they're witnessing and that there will be something in it that is helpful to them because the last thing any of us want to do right now, I mean, I don't know about you, but screen time. I'm so over screens as we're sitting here, the blessing of the screen, the blessing right. of the screen, but I'm over screens. So if we're going to ask people to commit a half hour of their evening to watching some more about COVID, mm -hmm. um, it better be something that helps their family. And, and honestly, I love this family we were with because they're all of us. The kids were very forthright about how much online school was difficult. Mm -hmm. Their oldest child graduated from college and got an email congratulations and no mm -hmm. graduation. And we have so many families in that position. And so how do you still keep yourself up? How do you not get sucked into the monotony of what so many families are living in where we're not really doing much? Um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, big picture, we will get through this and, you know, you just being stuck in, in our houses, it's just like the view becomes so myopic and we're, we're going to emerge from this, thankfully for those that, that aren't physically impacted by the disease. I interviewed a teen coach and she was saying, mom and dad, relax. They, our kids are resilient. Yes. You know, they're, they're going to, they're going to be fine. You're going to be fine. We're all going to, we're all going to be fine as long as we, you know, keep ourselves safe. So. And I think perspective is important. I was having a conversation with a man yesterday whose father is a Holocaust survivor. He survived at 13 years old, the Buchenwald death march. And, um, we were discussing that when you think this year is bad and when you feel it's really difficult because you miss your friends and you can't really go to eat and, 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 and people we know who have been sick, not minimizing it, people have lost jobs. I think sometimes having a dramatic perspective of what real suffering is can help remind us, okay, all right. 
So I haven't been with the people I want to hug in six months, but we're going to get back to it. We're going to come out the other side. I think it's good sometimes. I know personally, I need a bonk on the head sometimes. Yes. Right. Because I can spiral like anyone else and be like, oh, you know, so that was good. It was very helpful for me yesterday. And I was sharing that with a lot of people like perspective, perspective, perspective. Right. And how, how old is this gentleman now? So, so he is 63 and his father is still alive and he's in his late eighties. And they were both in the camps? No. So the gentleman I was speaking to, his father is a survivor of Auschwitz who lost his family there. And he was 13 at the time. Wow. He was 13 at the time. So, and it was towards the end of the war because they were liberated days after he got to Buchenwald. And he himself has only been speaking about his father's experience and how it informed his life in recent years. It was just something that, as I know from interviewing several Holocaust survivors, people don't openly speak about often. Yes. Especially that generation too. Especially that generation for sure. So interesting. So you shared on social media that one of the episodes is about opioids. Mm -hmm. So um, talk to me a little bit about kind of um, how you've changed after kind of digging in and learning more about that. So the, the day I knew that we had to do an episode on it was the day the news, the news article announced that you were more likely to die from an opioid overdose than in a car crash. Mm. I remember the parking lot I was sitting in and the Starbucks I was about to walk in and I saw it on my phone and I thought, there's no way that's not possible. So really stuck with me and we were concepting episodes for season two. And the great thing with this collaboration we have with GPB is that we're very synergistic in our approach to things. And, And I said, I think we should do an hour on opioids, have it be an hour long instead of a half hour. And then Taya said, how about two hours with a full studio audience and a panel of experts and a call line for people to call. And so it grew and grew and grew and the state got involved with us. So my husband and I, we went to Appalachia to shoot the birthplace of the crisis where they are what's called the third wave, meaning the third generation of families being destroyed by it because it's 25 years in. We examined how it came to pass in the mid nineties when doctors were given the edict to do a better job of managing pain. Mm. And it coincided with the release of some of these opioids from certain drug makers who are now being held accountable all these years later, but the damage has already been done. And so on a personal level, it was a wake up call for me Mm -hmm. to my naivete. Um, I, I have, I I have had one or two friends who have been addicted to painkillers I have alcoholism in my, in my own family. So I know what it is to witness addiction and love someone with addiction and be able to separate the person from the addiction. But opioids scared me in a way that even alcohol didn't. And I'd say that the big thing was the young adults I interviewed who had their first opioids out of their parents' medicine cabinet. And I remember being at this shoot and thinking, I, I, I know I don't have any, I know I don't have any, but I'm going to go home and check. And I went home and I found five bottles in my medicine closet. And one had my appendix burst like six years ago. Now they gave me some, then I didn't take them. So you know how they give you the prescription yep. and then, you know, you put it in your suitcase, leave the hospital, go home. 
I got it for a dental, um, a tooth extraction. Um, and I got it for the birth of one of my children. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And so there it was, my children are 15 and 13. Um, one of these kids started doing it in eighth grade. And I think the thing that scared me about it was we live in this time where our children are raised in this digital age, right? Sure. They live on social media. They see so many things that we didn't see before and they're bombarded with so much. I think that you, we read so much about the pressure today on teens. And then you read about this drug that can make you feel at peace or euphoric or safe and warm as people who were addicted described to me. And it really scared me. Of course, I got rid of all of them safely. And then the, the other thing that happens is like, you know, how when you're pregnant, you never notice pregnant women before. And then when you're pregnant, you notice every pregnant woman. So doing the opioid special, all of a sudden I kept meeting people who had it in their family. Yes. And you realize it's all around you. And, and one thing, Rena, is we'd heard that the CDC director, Dr. Robert, Robert Redfield, that his son had been addicted to opioids, but he'd never given an interview about it. But he had spoken about it in a closed ballroom at an event recently. And I became obsessed with getting an interview with him about it. And I reached out to the CDC and it took a really long time and they granted me the interview and I was excited and shocked. And my husband and I went and they told me before he came, you know, he's probably not going to discuss his son at all. So he may talk about the issue of opioids, but he's probably not going to discuss his son. He's father of six, devout Catholic, very devout, daily mass goer. We're Catholic in our family too. And my husband is a daily rosary prayer. So already there, there was like a little connection. And um, Director Redfield came to the room and he said, did you get the bushel of crabs I sent you? And that's an insider joke because I'm from Maryland. So he had looked me up. Oh. It's too. And Marylanders were crazy for our crabs. Yeah. So we proceeded to have this really meaningful conversation. And afterwards, we had a very long conversation about faith. Um, but he shared what his own son had gone through um, without identifying which of his six children it was and how it almost tore their family apart and how he had been a renowned. HIV AIDS doctor in Baltimore and treated people for years who were addicted to opioids. And he said, until it entered my own family, I didn't get it. And I think now I would have been a better doctor if I knew what it did to families. But the fact that he's coming on and for the first time talking about what it did to his own family, and he said he and his wife would go to dinner parties and his wife might say something and then someone else would say something. And he'd say fully 50% of the people there had some connection to painkiller abuse, mm -hmm. to opioid addiction in their families. Yes. Yeah, it is, uh, it is rampant and we are not talking about it. That's why I just was thrilled to hear that this was uh, an issue that you were, you were addressing because until we get more comfortable with having these conversations and bringing the light to the darkness that is addiction, people just really don't understand it. And, you know, there is, you know, people think that it's a moral failing and it is not. Didn't you find that out with your research, Jay? Yeah. So since the show is Your Fantastic Mind and it's 50% science, 
it's a brain disease. It's not a moral failing. And it's very simple, actually. What happens when you start taking opioids is that your, your brain starts producing ridiculous amounts of dopamine, which is the feel-good hormone. And so where food or sex or alcohol might be 50 or 75 on a scale, there are levels in opioids that are over a thousand. So you're talking about true rushes of euphoria that people have never experienced. And if you're in pain, you want to keep doing it. But the brain also quickly develops tolerance, which is why you have to take more and more of the drug to get high. And then you're taking the drug just to chase away the withdrawal symptoms. And that is so that people can avoid being what they call dope sick. And so that's where they wind up stuck there, unable to get out of it. And it's really painful to see what happens to people who get stuck in this cycle of addiction. And then for people who go to treatment, get themselves in recovery, if you relapse with alcoholism, which I have witnessed in my own family, it is a majority of the time not fatal. I mean, I know God forbid people get behind the wheel, they drive. But if you sit at home by yourself and dig into a 12 pack, odds are you will live to see another day. In opioids, you lose your tolerance when you get in recovery. So if three Oxycontin were your thing and you relapse, that was what we found. People who would take their dose that they took for their high, and but it killed them because the tolerance is gone and the brainstem will shut down your body's ability to breathe. And that is, thank God, why Narcan is a godsend, right? Yes, it absolutely um, is. To bring people back, to bring people back. So but that, Jade, that's to me was so scary. Yeah. Did you find that connection of people who started using um, the Oxycontin or the opioids and they couldn't access it anymore, so then they would make the switch to heroin? Yeah. Did you talk to sure. anybody who, who took that trajectory? Every, everyone, everyone except with the exception of one woman um, lost their access to pills. And also pills are far more expensive than heroin. Right. Heroin's a lot cheaper. And, you know, I've, we have, we have so much data in this documentary, but I feel like it was three out of four people um, who were on heroin started with pain pills. And um, what was very interesting to me is the fastest growing group of people on heroin are the privately insured women. I forget what the third group was now, but it's groups that you would never think. And so it, when we were in Appalachia, we went to the University of Kentucky and they have this incredible center there. Kentucky is one of the four states in the nation that's been awarded an $87 million HEAL grant. And they are charged with, in three years, reducing the opioid overdose rates by 40%, mm. which is an enormous challenge to yes. try to tackle. Yes. Um, and it was interesting talking to them about their approach. They're going into some of these hardest hit counties in Kentucky. And it's interesting because these counties are going into debt because so many people are in jail and the jail bill is so high mm. that they can't patch roads. They can't do civic things that they're doing because of how much money is going to the jails because of people in there who are addicted. It's also the criminalization of something that's a brain disease. Right. Huh. We've got work to do in this area for sure. 
for yeah. sure. And it's, um, since I've worked in the field of addiction and recovery, I mean, we've been, we've been calling it pandemic levels for years. I mean, we lose, I don't know what the latest numbers are, 75,000 people a year to overdose deaths. And, yeah. you know, it's, you know, we just have to, we have to, to turn the tide on that. So fentanyl scares me a lot. Oh, yeah. Fentanyl scares me a lot. We went to the GBI and we shot some of the fentanyl they had and just watching the person suit up to even handle it, right? Knowing a few a, a few little flakes could kill you. Um, and I think that it, when we looked at the data in Georgia, that's been the incredible spike in deaths mm -hmm. is from when fentanyl entered in 2013. Yeah. It just went through the roof because people thought they were only having Oxycontin, but it was laced with fentanyl. There was a, there was a study here at Emory that Rollins School of Public Health was doing, and it was a study that has something to do with heroin users. And so, being part of the study, you had to give a urine sample. And uh, Dr. Hannah Cooper said to me, the people who were coming into the study doing the urine sample, all of them were testing negative, and these were people who were self-professed heroin users. And she said, and what we found out by adjusting our test is every single person in the study who thought they were using heroin was using fentanyl. And they had to change their urine measurement to be able to capture that. And so, and I was told, and I can't remember if I was told in Kentucky or even here that in Boston, it's all fentanyl now. It's no heroin, it's all fentanyl. And that's what's so terrifying is because for people who are using these drugs, they don't even know what they're getting. Exactly. Yeah, because that fentanyl creates a better high than yeah. straight her heroin. So, ugh. yeah, and, that, and that's the other thing is, you know, I had some people reach out to me who knew I was doing it saying, I hope you're not demonizing opioids because I couldn't function without them because yeah. I've had six back surgeries. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the big challenge is that in some cases, opioids do provide relief for people, mm -hmm. but their misuse is just profound. Um, and and the, the prescription monitoring program, though, Dr. Redfield said it has, it has cut um, prescriptions by over 60%. So that's a good thing because we had a, a number from the state that the number of opioids prescribed here in Georgia was enough for every single man, woman, and child. It was like 541 million doses. And so that's shocking. We yes. still have a lot of work to do. Most definitely. So when does your fantastic mind start? Tell us where we can connect with that. And specifically, when does the opioid special air? So your fantastic mind is uh, every Wednesday night starting next week, September 9th at 7 p.m. on Georgia Public Broadcasting. Um, and the opioid special is Monday night, September 28th, 7 to 9 p.m. And that'll be when we share the hour-long documentary, Broken Into Bits, and we have some of the leading opioid experts in the country and in the state who um, I'm going to be talking to in between the segments and taking questions from people at home um, and, and also the, the state's hotline to connect people with services available in the state will be fully staffed that night to take live calls from anyone who may need to be connected to resources for themselves or a family member. Because that's another sad thing is that there, there isn't enough treatment access for everyone, right? And this, and this COVID pandemic has made overdose rates spike up. Yeah. And so the need is greater than ever before. Yeah. 
And Georgia, you probably are aware of this, their network of recovery community organizations, RCOs. There are a number of these nonprofit organizations throughout the state that are, um, you know, it's a, it's a place to go for recovery meetings and to attend sober social activities. So Georgia is really leading the, um, the effort in that area for safe places for people in recovery together. So um, super excited about that. Yeah, for sure. There was a woman we met, Missy Owen in Cobb oh, County. Yeah. We know Missy. Yes. She's so she runs the zone. Yeah. This incredible 35,000 square foot facility that has dozens of recovery meetings a week because they support every pathway to recovery. Yes. And, and it's her way to move forward without her son, Davis, who she lost in an yes. overdose, who was found in his car after 20 hours or something, six weeks out of, out of rehab. Um, and that, that is um, having spent a lot of time with parents whose children are no longer here. And I always wonder how somebody breathes and moves forward after that to see the strength of these people devoting their lives to making sure other families don't go through it by starting nonprofits, by becoming part of the effort, by bringing awareness. And I, and I think if there's anything that I hope that the, that the special does, it's that it removes the stigma because I think we tend to judge people Mm -hmm. with opioid use disorder as like weak. And as you said, a moral failing. And that's just simply not accurate. The science does not show that. It is a brain disease. This person needs treatment like someone would with diabetes. Exactly. They need treatment, they need help. Um, and I think the more we talk about it, the more we bring that darkness into the light, mm-hmm. the, the better we can be at confronting the problem and getting help to the people who need it. Right, and I don't know if you came across this saying that the, the opposite of addiction is connection. It's not sobriety, it's connection. So that's, that's what people who are suffering need more than anything is connection for us to lean in and show grace and show love. And that's not only to the, to the person who's addicted, but to their family, because it, it impacts a family just on a level that we can't even imagine. So Let's lead with love and grace and not be feared, fearful of this type of discussion. No, I love that you said that. And I think that is so incredibly true. Um, in our COVID episode, we addressed that substance use has shot up during COVID. And one of the things one of our folks talk about is people are feeling disconnected, mm-hmm. you know, and also people who were in recovery who have relapsed because they don't have that connection they took for granted. And you know, a lot of places they've, they've moved to this, like you and I are doing and having meetings, but it's still difficult, right? The community that you count on to help get you through. So I think that's a very good point, Rena. Yeah. Well, you are a light and I'm just so glad to have this conversation with you. One more question for you. So the word relevate means to uplift or restore to good spirits. So close us out, Jay Watson. Okay. Here's what I can say about that is that I didn't know if I was supposed to leave broadcast news. I didn't know why I was supposed to come to Emory Brain Health. I didn't expect to get offered a show. And then I wasn't sure what to do with it when I got offered. But on a personal level, I would say that what I have learned in my three and a half years here is that we have more control over our health regarding our brains than we 
realize. There's a lot of research out there about effective interventions to prevent cognitive decline. And, and some of those interventions are as simple as being very good at exercise and adopting a Mediterranean diet. But I will tell you one thing in our house for my husband and I that we did right away in season one of our show, there are these researchers at the VA who have discovered that interval aerobic exercise done four times a week can make your brain five to seven years younger in 12 weeks, in 12 weeks. And here's what happens when we get old, you, you lose inhibition, which is funny because that sounds like a double meaning, but you know how the one side of your brain controls the other side of your body and yeah. vice versa. Uh-huh. When you get older, when you have trouble opening something, or when you forget a word, it's because both sides of your brain are lighting up and it's only supposed to be one side. So it kind of muddies the waters a little bit. And they kind of by accident early on in their research found this guy who was like 75, but his brain still was lighting up the way it should. Mm -hmm. And when they traced the brain back to the person, he was an accomplished athlete. So they started looking at the role of exercise in our brains. And what they found is that exercise makes your brain younger. And there was another study done around the same time, a longitudinal study on the heart that found interval aerobic exercise can make your heart 10 to 12 years younger. And there is, there is a top out for that. It's like after 72, you don't get the same gains. So we started doing that right away. We were already good at exercising, but we were like, who doesn't want their brain younger? Who doesn't want their heart younger? Especially with each year that goes by, we think, how can we stay healthy? So I do think that where we see things beyond our control and a, and a lot right now in this world is beyond our control, right? There's a lot within our control as far as our brain health and our brain health is everything. It's our mental health. It's our, how we use substances in our life. It's our sleep. It is, it is everything. And then there's our mind, the part that makes us human. Um, I I'll never, because I'm so wildly curious, I'll never run out of stories to do. That's the good thing. That is I'll never run out of stories here for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time and Keep doing the great work and telling great stories. And um, let's let's talk again. I love what you're doing. Truly a pleasure to have the chance to have this conversation. It's wonderful to talk to you. Thank you for having me on. God bless. Okay. God bless you too. Let's go work out. Let's go work out. So the ability to tell a good story, in my opinion, is true art form. And nobody tells a story better than Jay Watson. I love the fact that she walked away from a job she loved as a television reporter in search of a bold new career path. It took a big leap of faith for her and her family. And we, the consumers of media, are the beneficiaries of her boldness. In the latest season of Your Fantastic Mind, Jay artfully tackles a number of topics, all centered around brain health, including stress, opioids, depression, Second Chances, and my favorite, an episode on dogs. The entire series is now online. You can watch it from anywhere. Check it out at gpb.org and search for Your Fantastic Mind. I'm Rena Olson. Thanks to my friend Jay for this interview, and this is Relevate.